Well, Patty, I loved our episode today. Of course, anytime we get Roger McNamara on here to talk about the huge B2B opportunity, it's always exciting. It's so exciting. And he just, he, he gets me excited just listening to, to him talk about this market. Yeah, you know, it's interesting yeah. because it, it's easy to feel like, you know, the payments market, it seems saturated in some ways. You know, you get out there and everybody's already accepting credit cards. Everybody's already accepting debit cards, you know. Then you go to the B2B and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. There's all these people who are not payments. What's happening? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Just wide open. I mean, like Roger was talking about, it's like a $10 trillion in B2B payments. And I believe he said, 8%, what 8%, 8% are going with cards. So yeah, do the math. I mean, a lot of upside the opportunity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then uh, Patty, tell us about the insider's reports. We're, uh, we're talking about de- debit routing and, uh, you know, a Fed proposal to uh, clamp down a little bit on uh, some Visa and MasterCard and issuer practices regarding debit routing. Yeah, and so then, it's a- James, you have a great uh, insight for uh, in our questions in the field. You want to give everybody a little sample of that? Sure. Yeah, it's pretty simple today. Just talking about how to grab the attention of somebody when you're cold calling, whether it's on the phone or, or in person. I was going to say, Patty, your insider's report, you know, it's like a big shocker. Visa and MasterCard are trying to to grab uh, more right. of the market, you know, what a surprise. And the, and the yeah, feds are stepping yeah. in. It's like, oh, this story has been, we've seen this before. Um, yeah. But uh, it's exciting stuff. And then, yeah, just talking about how to grab attention. You know, when you're out selling, it's like, no matter how good your pitch is, if you don't grab the attention of the prospect, you're never going to get a chance to give them your value prop. So, yeah, I agree. And so uh, we also want to mention that uh, this, this episode is sponsored by NMI. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that during the during the podcast. So are you ready, James? I'm ready. Let's go. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here with our good friend, Roger McNamara. How are you doing today, Roger? Hey, James, Patty. Great to see you guys again. Great Absolutely. to see you again, Roger. Last time I saw you, was, was at MWAA? It was. It was in Chicago. We had a great old time there. We had a great uh, time good. there. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm really excited about our conversation today. We're going in a slightly different direction than we have in the past. Um, Same topic, of course, we're talking about B2B, Roger being the president of Guide to Interchange, which specializes in B2B sales training and things of that nature. Um, We're going to be talking today about how to build a B2B portfolio, meaning how to build a portfolio of merchants that largely sell to other businesses. So vendors, wholesalers, things along those lines. So Roger, can you update us since the last time you were on what are you seeing in the marketplace? Is this concept of B2B payments, is it picking up? Um, what are the trends that you're seeing? How are things going there? Yeah, great. Um, so glad to be with you guys again and uh, to get to talk to the audience. So yeah, James, we definitely see definitely see a trend towards B2B. There are more people uh, curious than ever about this space. I think we've talked about it in the past. It's a $10 trillion opportunity in payments. Right. Or card is the lowest percentage of any of the payment types in the industry. So um, you and I were down at SEAA. We had a great time down there. We talked to, we had a full room of people uh, at the Midwest Acquirers Association. Patty, you and I were there and it seemed every second person, you know, was wanting to, uh, to, to explore B2B and find out more about it. And how can they break into the category? What are the barriers? What can they do to be successful in this space? Because there's so much opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, you know, Roger, I thought one thing we could do a little different this episode is maybe start us off with some success stories. You know, yeah. now that you've worked with so many ISOs, I just talked to a very large, well-known um, processing company uh, a few days ago. And they said, Hey, you told us about that guy, Roger. We had him do one of our, uh, you know, kind of virtual events. And they said they've never had a topic that their agents were more interested in. So I'm hearing stories like That's this. Cool. 
Yeah, you know, tell us some success stories, some examples, Roger. How are ISOs utilizing the training? How are they attacking B2B and what kind of success are they seeing? Sure. So, um, yeah, we've worked with, with tons of ISOs across the country in the four corners and in between everywhere else. Um, actually, we're going to Canada next week to work with a, a, a big player up in the Canadian market. But um, tremendous success across all sorts. Um, you know, James, we work with one-man shops who decide they want to get into B2B, uh, want to take that first step. They go through our training. And then we love getting these success stories. I'll tell you a story about a, an ISO we worked with in the Massachusetts market. And not long after he took our training, he sent me an email and said, listen, I, I just got to let you know, uh, I had a first transaction come through today in a B2B account that I went back and pitched after the training. And the first transaction was for $85,000, he said. Wow. He said, I had never seen that before. He said, you know, I was used to $100 and $150 transactions. He said, you know, we had to make sure that the underwriter was good and the risk was good. But, you know, once we provided the information, he said, in the transaction, he said, now I'm starting to see this $85,000 transaction come through on a monthly basis. So things like this that, that ISOs have never seen in the past, merchant sellers have never seen in the past. Uh, I had a, an, another independent down in the Maryland market that took our training. And not long after he took our training, he wrote back and he said verbatim, he said, Wow. He said, you told us that people would tell us that their DSOs, their day sales outstanding was 45 days. The first B2B merchant I walked into, that's what they said. He said, it was like you knew what they were going to say. And I said, hey, it's <laughs> not like I know that this is pretty standard what goes on in the market. Well, he right. went on to say that he was successful in signing the merchant and affiliating them for B2B. And he probably wouldn't have done it without the training. So we start, we're seeing all sorts. We, we James, you mentioned the group. I, I don't want to give out any names here, but um, we had a very, very large player in the market who took our training and I think was a little skeptical. And then uh, the, the folks that took it, embraced it, ran with it, used it, were successful yeah. with it. And now we're going back to train the rest of their sales force. So, you know, these yeah. are the type of things that we're seeing across the board. So, so tell me, Roger, because you just sort of alluded there, there is a lot of skepticism still. You know, I obviously, as you just explained, you've talked to a lot of ISOs and agents over the last, you know, year or two. What is it that's holding, you know, what are the reasons they give you get for ISOs and agents not wanting to build a B2B portfolio? Why, you know, do you get any, get anybody, any pushback, um, you know, serious pushback? And if so, what is it based on? Sure. So the the kind of things we hear sometimes are, you know, I and mean, you and I have talked about this in the past, you know, the independents are that they're independent, but right. sure. um, you'll talk to folks sometimes and they'll say, yeah, well, I sell in B2B and I'll say, well, what do you sell? And they're selling the same process that they've sold in business to consumer, which is selling a price commodity. Yeah. So it's really hard sometimes for somebody who's been selling that price commodity in B2B and think that they're having relative success. You know, they're signing up a merchant, that merchant is processing a half a million dollars a year. But here's the key, Patty. That's a 20 or $50 million entity and they're getting $500,000 in credit out of it when they should be getting five, 10, 15 million. And right. the reason they're not getting it is because they're selling old ways, which is to sell on price in B2B. And there's so much more to selling in B2B. We've got to look at, at the reduction in day sales outstanding and how do we quantify it? We've got to look at the efficiency component of what we bring in a transaction with credit. We've got to look at the tax benefit associated. 
And these are things that are in our training that are not really general knowledge out there in the B2B selling world. So I would tell you that, you know, once we talk to these guys and we've converted a lot of them over to our training, but the first thing that they think is, hey, I'm already selling in this space. What they don't realize right. is they're, they're not, they're not, they're hitting singles, not grand slams. Right. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting, Roger. I just talked to um, a, uh, one of my consulting clients has a, a newer ISO, but I mean, substantial. And uh, we were talking about this. I ended up recommending your training because we were talking about how he already, you know, we were talking about opportunities to pursue. And one of the opportunities that came up was maybe I should be focused more on B2B. And I'm like, yes, that's a good idea. So let's talk more about that. And he's like, yeah, because he said, you know, I go out there and he said, I've got these accounts. He said, they're so easy for me to sign up. I go out there, I sign them up. They do a hundred thousand a month in, in processing. I just set them up with a nice gateway and you know, a pay trace or whatever. And, and they, you know, and then we, he said, then what we do is we just match their current he, What they were doing is they were matching their current effective rate and then doing the interchange optimization to generate margin whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but do you realize that if they're processing a hundred thousand with you based on the pitch you just told me, you probably could get them to be processing a million or more a month. Absolutely. You know, and he's like, Absolutely. wait a minute, what? You know, I'm like, yeah, like there, you're the lesser of all the evils in their mind right now. If you mm -hmm. actually became the preferred payment method, you know, their revenue is probably 15, 20 times that, you know yeah. what I mean? We, we like to say to people, listen, credit can be a collection tool, not an overhead. Today, yeah. to your right. point, James, is the lesser of evil. You're an overhead. You're a line item cost on their balance sheet. We want to show those finance types that we're a collection tool and we're the most profitable collection tool because we can reduce DSO. And for every day we reduce DSO, that's money to the bottom line for these finance types. Right. Right. Absolutely. So I think it's really interesting. And, and I, I do, I want to shift the conversation to really practical kind of step-by-step -step of how this is working. But I, I do want to just zoom out one for one more second here. So the number you gave a minute ago, you said it was how how big of an opportunity? You said it was ten trillion, or was it ten trillion? That's what I say. Al Kelly from Visa actually says, I believe I've heard him say thirty three trillion. So I, I mean, it's the number some yeah. between, somewhere between ten and thirty three, but it's and, a big and, number. And I want to I anything want to, over ten is a big deal anyway. Right? Yeah, well, anything over one is yeah. yeah so exactly. I, I just I just want to clarify for one second, Roger, for our audience. Can you can you break that down a little bit more? In other words. When you say this opportunity, we're talking about what the, that's the amount of transactions that businesses are paying to businesses. Yeah. And then do you have any other stats on kind of like what percentage of that is currently transpiring using a card? Oh, yeah. 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 So you know, can give us a little more context of the kind of the bigger yeah. picture here. So, so it's a $10 trillion opportunity or $33 trillion, whatever way you want to look at it. It's a big opportunity. Let's focus on this. Card today is only 8% of big payments in B2B. So everything that's being transacted in the B2B world today, the biggest manufacturers, the biggest sellers, the biggest buyers, all of that represents the volume of 10 trillion. Only 8% of that is going on a plastic card, on an expense card, like a P card, a virtual card, something of that method. I will tell you this, the king years ago used to be check. Check is now only 36%. COVID really put a nail in that yeah. coffin because right. people digitized rapidly. The winner in this was ACH. ACH came out and ACH is now about 38% of transactions in this space. The rest is made up from wire and other methods that are that companies do. So card- so 8%, you're saying it's 8% of the B2B currently is going on card. Yeah, which is yeah. now here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road on this, Patty. If you think about B2C today, Plastic represents probably in the 95% range of all transactions within B2C. Right. So in B2B, we only represent 8%. So the question is, why are we so low? Well, number one reason is 
there's not a lot of people sell it. Number two reason is because the suppliers believe that it is the most expensive payment method they can offer. To James' point, they're the less, it's the lesser of all evils. Right, right. right. So what we need to teach sellers in this space is that card can be just as cost-effective as check, ACH, and wire. But you have to critically look at the card product as to how you make it cost-effective. Here's what I would say to you. Card is the only payment method that comes with payment benefits on both sides. The user gets a benefit and the buyer can get a benefit. In other words, check doesn't give anyone a benefit. It doesn't give the buyer a benefit and it doesn't give the supplier a benefit. Card is unique in this space. And that's why we can get card from 8% to 28% to 38%. But we got to have more people selling it and we got to have them understanding the transaction and how it works. Yeah. James, right. does that work? Yeah, I love it. I love it. I appreciate that. So, so now that we've zoomed out, now let's zoom in. So let's start at the very beginning, which is how do we find a business that we're going to go prospect? You know, our, most people on our podcast are like, okay, I just picked up the phone. I pull up Google maps. I buy a list. I go out on the street. So how do they start this prospecting experience to find a B2B company that they would go after? What, what have you seen that's been successful? Fantastic question. And uh, so in our training, we cover this, and this is uh, very unique to what we do. So we're not advocates of cold calling or working lists. Why? Because in the business the business space, you must follow demand. Now, part of the problem that we've had in our industry is we're very siloed. So we're on this side, on the acquiring side, but there's a whole other side of our business that hasn't been tapped into yet, okay? Now, we teach that. We teach uh, merchant sellers how to monetize their own merchant base. The more mids you have, the more chance you have of success. You just haven't asked him the right question of your own merchants. When you go to see your own merchants, you talk to them about processing. We haven't been talking to them about what they do on the payable side of their business. We teach that method in our training, and it blows open the doors for ISOs and merchant sellers to hop right into acquiring merchants because they're not having a cold call. They're warm calling, if you want to call it, because their own customers are giving them the leads that they need to be successful. And I think just to clarify that just a bit, if I could, I think what I hear you saying is if I go to one of my merchants that I'm currently doing processing for, it's let's say it's a restaurant and I say, who are you paying with your card right now? Or who is your vendor to supply your food or your ingredients or whatever it is that you're buying in bulk? That becomes a B2B lead, obviously, because this is a business who's paying that business. Yeah. I'll give you another step on that. How about saying to your own clients, who are your worst payers? Who's paying you in 90 days? And would yeah. you take a card to settle that? I'll go broker that deal for you. Mm. I mean, right. you're, revert, you're reverse engineering transactions. Sure. So, that, so that's, going, that's going to your existing B2B, yeah. right? Merchant clients and saying, hey, who are your worst payers? Let's get into pay with a card so you get your money right away. Absolutely. You can reverse yeah. engineer the transaction. The beauty of B2B is that we don't become merchant sellers. We become brokers. We can get in between the transaction on both sides of the equation and we can bring it together. And that's very unique about this space. But one in our world, in the merchant services world, we haven't been used to because we're very siloed. So, you know, thankfully our training, our guys that take it, uh, understand we have three phases of this that we teach and they hit the ground running on day two and they go out and they implement these three methods in phases. And that helps them get traction very quickly within B2B. So you don't have to be going out chasing down IBM on day two because, you know, the the sales cycle for that would be enormous. You can go out, start with modest type B2B accounts, cut your teeth, be very successful, 
and get a great residual income from them. So for example, you might go to the restaurant, find out who their suppliers are, you know, and then go to those suppliers and, and Absolutely. call. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's unlimited. So there's, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down. You'll be, you'll be, I, I tell people this all the time in training, Patty. I tell them, go to a supermarket, buy toothpicks, put them in your eyes to keep them open 365 days a year because <laughs> you're never going to get a chance to sleep. Right. Well, tell me this though, Roger. Okay. So let's say, you know, I'm an agent. I go to, you know, my, one of my restaurants, right. And I say, Hey, you know, who are you paying by credit card? Which of your suppliers are you paying by credit card? You get that list of potential merchants, potential mm-hmm. contacts. Okay. So how do you get to the decision maker? Yeah. At yeah, that so, contact. So typically let's start with a good scenario here. So let's say you have a restaurant and a restaurant pays a linen supplier. And the linen right. supplier doesn't take card, but he's spending a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars a month with a linen supplier. Well, he knows everything about that linen supplier. He knows who owns it. He knows who he pays. He knows when he pays them. He knows how uh, long he takes to pay them. He knows where they're located. He might know the CFO. He might know the accounts receivable manager. You, you, as a business owner, you'll know all these things, or someone in your business will know all these things. Well, that's the part that we teach. We teach them to basically go in, acquire this information, and then make that first call. You're going to ask, hey, who do you deal with at this business? Oh, we deal with X, Y, or Z. Now, in our training, we will also give them a default strategy that we like the top-down selling method because we're going to give them the buzzwords necessary. When you talk to a finance type, a CFO, a VP of finance, and you pick up the phone and you tell them that you have an alternative to their payment term process, that can reduce their DSO, this is what they want to hear. This is the language that they want to speak. And those right. are the things that'll help. So we give them that information, Patty. It could be as simple as the owner, but they could give you the the, the name of the CFO or somebody in between to make that call. Okay. Yeah, cool. I love it. I, I think there's so much there to dig into. And, and again, there, there's too much to dig into, which I know is why you have the training, right? But um, I, I love it. And I think one, one interesting thing about that approach, though, is the like you said, becoming kind of the broker and being on both sides of the transaction, I mean, you really can't ask for a better pitch than to go in and say, hey, the reason I'm calling on you is your client XYZ Linen or XYZ Restaurant that's spending X amount with you. It's like you have instant credibility, you know? Yeah, we have right. a mutual customer, our mutual right. customer I'm calling you on behalf of. Right. That's very much different than picking up the phone book and right. calling somebody up and saying, hey, do you take credit cards? Yeah. You know, that's that's what a that's what a credit card guy does. We we teach right. them to be more like a payment consultant and that payment consultant yeah. uses that vernacular. James, right. you, you and I have chatted about this in the past. You know, um, the vernacular in B2B is critical to yes. success. Yes. And absolutely. We, we, de- we dig deep into that with them. Yeah, I, I talk to yeah. so many people that try to go after the B2B space and they're like, well, I feel like I'm using a good script, a good pitch, whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you don't say certain terms and certain words, that CFO, that VP of finance, that payable person is going to instantly realize that you have no understanding of their business at all. It it would be like the equivalent of trying to go in and sell payment processing to a rest to a fine dining restaurant without understanding tip adjust. Right. As a payments professional, you would never, I mean, you, maybe you tried that when you first started and you looked like an idiot yeah. And then you were like, oh, this is a big deal. They have to actually track their tips and which server got the tips. And there's a lot involved with that, right? Sure, sure. And if you don't understand that and you go in to sell a restaurant, you're going to look like an idiot. And yeah. I think 
you know, in the same way, I see people trying to sell B2B and they don't know the terms. They don't understand all of this rationale and they tend to flounder a bit. So, um, you know, okay. So, so let's move forward with the sales process here, Roger. So we, you know, we, we got the the decision maker on the phone. Uh, we're talking to them a bit. There are obviously so many directions you can go. There's so many different kind of aspects to this value proposition. Do you have any tips as far as like, are you saying, hey, let's set up another time to talk? Are you trying to just set a meeting from a meeting or are you jumping right in? And if so, what are you talking about? Give us a little idea of kind of that yeah. initial uh, contact. Um, so the initial method we teach is we want to make contact to get an appointment. But, right. you know, it's very key what we're saying in that first call to really get attention. Um, you know, we like to we like to, to teach this phrase. I'm calling about an alternative to your current term process. Now, you've mm. never heard mention of the word credit within that phrase. Right, sure. But it is an alternative to their term process because right now most businesses are giving term and they're waiting until day 45 to receive payment. That right. costs them money. We can eliminate that for them. Um, and it's so also that, the term that, they, that they're familiar with. I mean, absolutely, I can, absolutely. I can, so they, they, they might say, well, tell me a little bit about that. You know, so our main goal here is to get them to get in front of that prospect because there's a lot of questions we want to ask because the goal here will be to complete a net cost analysis, which we teach in our training, so that the seller can go back with a net effective cost of credit after all the value that they deliver is extracted. Imagine right. this. Imagine going back into a B2B merchant and saying, hey, listen, if you do our program with us, this is what you can offer your customers, your net effective cost is 65 basis points to accept plastic. This is revolutionary. This is blowing the doors off what they're saying. We said, hey, wait a second, how do we get to that? Well, we're gonna show them how they get their money faster. We're gonna show them how they're more efficient. We're gonna show them the tax benefit. We're gonna show them through James's CC Sales Pro rate optimization tool, the level three data that they can, they can attract into the business and what the value of that is. And then we're gonna show them a net effective cost. So that first phone call, we are going to whet their appetite to get to that process. And that's what our intention is. Get that first meeting, get all that information, create that, uh, that net cost uh, calculator, and then deliver it back to the, 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 the finance type. So it's a three-step process then, right? You call- Pretty much. You call, you get, you get, then the next step is to get the information. And then the third step is to present them with a proposal. Absolutely. Okay, so. Cool. So one of the other things I was thinking about that we haven't really discussed much um, on the podcast is technology. Um, so, you know, you you have the person interested, you go back in, you're making this value proposition. How big of a deal is the technology and, and any thoughts on this? In other words, you know, is it is it enough for most of these agents and ISOs that want to go after this market to say, well, we have a gateway that we offer, you know, or are there a lot of kind of integrations, ERP type stuff? I mean, what, what do you run into when you're out there in the marketplace yeah, trying to sell yeah. B2B? So, James, Patty, it's driven by the size of the account. So when we get up into large type, over $50, $100 million, and into the enterprise space, this is the mega accounts, the three, $400 million accounts. Yes, there's massive integration here. Um, but sometimes that integration can be simpler than one thinks because all that software tends to be proprietary and custom written code. Mm -hmm. So inserting your processing and a dial out string to your network can usually be all that's required. When you get into smaller integrations, like with a build trust or a high radius or some of these big ERP solutions, mm -hmm. you might find yourself boxed out. But the large part of the market represents in the small to medium sized space from the businesses that are 100,000 to 10 million. 
this is a huge opportunity. And those are as simple as going and install, installing your gateway, like a Paytrace, somebody who's really successful in the B2B space. So those are pretty simple out there. And if you're a reseller for Paytrace or you're a reseller for other uh, gateway that's out there, it can be pretty simple. There can be integrations into QuickBooks and stuff like that. And these gateways have APIs that can interface those programs into someone's existing uh, network. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a storm in a teacup. I think what happens, James, is people psych themselves out here. They say, well, wait, wait, this is going to be a huge technology strain on me. I'm not going to go down this road because I'm so used to integration in B2C. Um, I I would tell you, I worked, as you guys know, I worked for Amex for 30 years. Weren't a huge technology player, yet they do billions and billions in this arena every year because there are simple ways to integrate transactions into solutions. So that's what I would say, James. Yeah, and I think think it's interesting. I agree with you that, you know, the the larger the company, I mean, what I find is it's sometimes there's a longer sales cycle for sure, but it's not that it's necessarily that much harder on you as the seller, because usually the larger companies have their own developers. As you mentioned, they've done a lot of their own coding. And so to them, it's maybe an annoyance, you know, it's, it's a cost to them for sure of saying, okay, well, to make this switch, we're going to help your business in all these different ways, which is going to justify you putting one of your developers on this for two weeks. Yes. But that's ultimately what it is. It's usually a two week to four week process of saying, we got to free up one of our full-time senior developers to switch from, we were integrating, or maybe we weren't even integrating with a payment processor. We were integrating mm-hmm. with ACH gateway or whatever. Now we're going to integrate with credit card and and that's it. So it's not like yeah. it's that big of a deal. And then the smaller ones, as you said, you just give them a gateway and you know, here's your login credentials and here you go. And there yeah. <laughs> need a little well, business businesses solve problems. So, you know, as you said, James, you know, they're writing code for a multitude of different things, right? ACH to their bank for cash, uh, cash management tools, all sorts of things. Right. So, you know, if there's a benefit to their business, this is why I often walk by in big offices, these legions of guys that are sitting coding, what are they doing? They're doing exercises like this. You know, yes. there, there are guys from all over the planet that do this and find it very simple. The biggest deals that I've acquired in my time, I basically handed them the spec and said, hey, integrate us right. into this. And in two weeks, as you said, it was done. Right, right. That's how it usually goes. So, okay. So kind of bringing this conversation full circle. So, you know, we've talked about kind of all the secret sauce that you talk about in terms of the the value propositions and all the reasons that they should go forward. So you're kind of winding it down. You're getting to the point where you're ready to actually finalize the transaction or close the deal as we would call it in our space. Um, any tips on that? You know, are there, you know, is it, is it more of a dollar and cents conversation at the end of like, you know, of, of the efficiencies or how do you present this? How do you close these deals with B2B that maybe a B2C rep might not, you know, be as used to? Yeah. So, um, we close the deals, you know, I teach a very effective to technique, I should say within the training, which is using our net cost calculator as a tool to close business. Cause we get in front of that CFO and we're presenting a total cost of 50, 60, 65 basis points for uh, the net benefit cost of plastic. That's big news. I mean, his perception, her perception is this is a three and a half to 4% cost. And now you're showing them where it's in the 50, 60, 65 basis point range. So what do we do there? Well, a lot of people, this is a tricky step for them. They become a little unhinged. When the price gets this low, they feel like they have to justify. So we teach them a very, very important technique, which is to quote what the net effective cost is. And dare I say it, shut up. And this is a very painful eight, nine seconds that occurs in the sales right. process, but it's very effective. And then we teach them two follow-up steps from that to close the business. So using what we've learned in the business, 
what our net effective cost is, is very effective. Because remember, James Patty, we're talking to finance people. They right. don't care about the weather. They care about the numbers. So yep. when we're able to, to show them that and be very articulate about it and understand it, it uh, throws our success quotient way up. Yeah. And it, it's interesting too. I mean, I would say in my experience of selling some of the larger accounts that I've sold, mm-hmm. um, me personally, I like it better in a lot of ways because I'm not the best small talker. You know, I can do it if I have to, but it's not my thing. You know, and you know this, Roger, we've spent time together. I mean, to me, I'm very intense. So it's like, I want to, if we're going to have a conversation, let's talk about this. Let's do it. You know, and for a lot of small business owners, it's like I had to really kind of ease off and kind of like, hey, let's talk about your business and let's just shoot the breeze for a little bit to make that rapport. But I love getting in front of the finance people and just saying like, here's the numbers, here's what we can do for you. Here's the rationale. What are your thoughts? And then just like you said, shut up and let them let them look at this spreadsheet a little bit and let them think and write some notes down. And next thing you know, 30 seconds later, which feels like an hour, you know, they, they give you a response. Yeah, they appreciate it actually, because, you know, on the reciprocation side, they don't get a lot of people on the daily basis that understand what their challenges are. Right mm-hmm. now you step into it and you understand what their challenges are right. and you can address those. Listen, the finance types are happy to hear about solutions that they're not aware of. We represent a huge opportunity for them to decrease that DSO. The average business out there, finance type in a business, can tell you the value of a one-day decrease in their day sales outstanding. That's huge to them. Now we come in and we say, listen, we can take chunks of this away by simply instituting a, a credit policy for plastic and accelerate your funds, make it more efficient. Uh, I'll give you this one stat. Most businesses uh, who don't get paid within 30-day term follow up three times after the term period on the phone to fi- find out where their money is. Yeah, Each sure. phone call costs a minimum of $25. Now you add that to the cost of collecting your invoice. You see what effect plastic can have. If your money's oh, yeah. already in your account, you've just eliminated a whole bunch of unnecessary processes out of the process. We show that in the training for people yeah. to see. Yeah, and you and you make the uh, VP of, of uh, finance look really good as well when they're when they're uh, you know days of sales outstanding starts to drop like a rock they they oh, get a big yeah. bonus which is and really what, which is really what they care about. <laughs> you, you're selling yourself short in the small talk arena. I've been around you more than enough to know you're a hell of a small talk. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, like I say, I can when I need to, you know. But uh, awesome. Well, Roger, you know uh, these conversations are never long enough to get uh, all the information. But again, that's why you have the training. Um, obviously, uh, for those in our audience that have have not reached out yet, they've not uh, learned about your training and what it can offer to them as an individual or as an ISO owner or executive. Um, talk to them a little bit about where they would go to learn more and tell us about your business a bit. Sure. So, uh, James, thank you, because we've, we've, uh, we've talked to hundreds of ISOs in the past, but if they do want to reach out to us, a couple of ways. Uh, our website is www.guide, G-U-I-D-E, the number two, interchange.com. Um, you can find us on LinkedIn under that. You can find me on LinkedIn, Roger McNamara, or my email address is uh, guide, G-U-I-D-E, the number two, interchange at gmail.com. You can reach me there or through this podcast. You can send us a message through our website. There's a ton of information out there. We write blogs about B2B. We write in the green sheet, Patty, for you guys. Right. Uh, we do a ton of stuff. We're very visible at a lot of the shows that that are that are out there so love to hear from anybody questions they have or just general b2b conversation awesome roger awesome. thank you roger, so much for your time hey yeah, you guys are great. great we really appreciate it you guys have a wonderful week
So Patty, of course, this podcast is officially sponsored by NMI.com, one of the leading gateway providers, but also more than that, these omni-channel solutions they have. And today I want to talk about the API. Um, you know, okay. a lot of, a lot of agents and ISOs, they kind of like, they know what an API is in general, but they don't really understand it. Right. Um, an API very simply just allows two technology solutions to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a structured way for two technology solutions to talk to each other. When it comes to the payment space, this idea of a payments API, um, you know, when you zoom out, it seems very simple, right? It's just, I need to send cardholder information along with an amount to a gateway and say, hey, run this amount on this card, right? Right. Very, really very simple. And there's so many ISVs and we even talked in, uh, you know, uh, the the interview today with Roger about integrating with technology. And so, you know, there's always sure. that need to integrate. And so, but it gets so much more complicated because of things like EMV compliance, um, right. you know, right. things like interchange optimization, all these different things. And I think NMI, I really believe from personal experience, they've done the best job of anyone I've seen at really simplifying their API, making it easy for developers to use it. And so it gives you a chance to go after those big B2B clients that need integration or yes. to, you know, even to go after um, software companies directly and say, hey, are you currently integrated with Stripe or Braintree or somebody else? Why not integrate directly right. with NMI? We can give you a little bit of a kickback or whatever the case might be. Um, there's all these opportunities. And I think, NMI having that API access is just crucial to have a simple, well-documented API that allows developers from different software companies to be able to integrate seamlessly. Yeah, and having a simple, seamless, you know, simple API is so important. I mean, it it takes so much of the grunt work yes. out of the uh, you know the tech the tech workers uh, workload. So. Uh, yeah, everybody, this is a really great opportunity for you now to uh, go visit. NM, or excuse me, ccsalespro.com slash NMI, nancymaryiris.com. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. Hey, everybody. So this week on Questions from the Field, I want to just talk about how to grab the attention of a prospect when you're cold calling. And I have a very specific tip. It's going to be one of my shortest questions from the field. Um, but I just want to tell you something that, you know, in my, it, it's so easy in my mind after you sell for, you know, 15 years, it's like, well, obviously everybody does this. But then I talk to people and I'm like, okay, they're not doing this, you know? So right. what is so important is when you're trying to grab people's attention, cold calling, whether this is your appointment schedulers on the phone, this is your outdoor to door you have to make your sales presentation the, the first, you know, 10 seconds, you have to make it targeted to that specific business. Okay. So it's very easy to get yourself into kind of a groove. You know, you've walked into 17 businesses, you're about to walk into number 18 and you can sound very robotic. Right. And when you sound robotic, guess what you sound like? You sound like a salesperson. Yeah. Well, right. business owners hate salespeople. So that's really a bad idea. <laughs> well, you want to sound like as a real person. And so when you walk into a business, what I personally- a real person with real answers, right? I mean, yeah. real actionable insights for you. Right. And, and the key though is right off the bat, they have to understand that what you're about to say is relevant to them, right? Right. When I was selling merchant services full-time, I would never go out and walk into a pizza shop and just start talking about how I sell credit card processing services. 
Um, I would never do that. Instead, what I would do is I would say, hi, my name is James Shepard. I specialize in working with pizza shops on reducing their cost of payment acceptance. Right. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm making it specific to pizza shops. If I'm on the phone, I'll say, you know, we have a special program right now and our program, uh, you know, uh, combines these different elements, these different things. And the reason I'm calling today is your name showed up on a list of potentially qualified merchants. Now this is Tony's pizza shop at one, two, three, you know, Trent street. Right. So I'm, you know, I, I, you have to do things like that because you have to qualify the conversation and make sure that it's relevant to them. And so no matter what you're doing in terms of your, you know, your cold calling and face-to-face over the phone, think about how can you add some kind of, you know, smart fields, I call it like when you're doing an email template, you have a smart field that says insert first name here, you know, well, you should have in your opening pitch, you know, insert business type here, insert business name here, um, insert business address here. You should have some things that are going to kind of grab their attention um, and they're going to make them realize, okay, this conversation that I'm about to have, this is very specific to my business and impacts me. That's really sound advice, James. That's really good stuff. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy. Okay, so last week, uh, James and and our listeners, you remember I um, talked about some debit card stats, and I alluded to something I was going to talk about this week with regards to debit card routing. And uh, specifically, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission want the Federal Reserve to take a tougher stance on debit routing. Fed earlier this year uh, proposed changing the commentary around its uh, Durban Amendment regulation uh, to make clear that merchants must be given a choice between two unaffiliated networks for routing debit card payments. Now, the issue here is something we've talked about in the past, which is pinless debit. Um, And pinless debit, as the name implies, it's offered by the regional ATM networks, EFT networks, and it basically supports online and other card not present transactions. Uh, In the online environment, they authorize the uh, debit card using address verification or um, CVV. Um, But uh, the problem is, is that the, is that issuers haven't um, incorporated that tech, the, you know, the the, uh, corresponding technology into the cards. Um, same, the same is the same occurs with regards to um, what do you call them? touch and go, you know, uh, contactless yeah, payments. Yeah, sure. Right, tap and go, right? Because that there has to be something programmed in the chip to support tap and go, and we've talked about that. How there's not a lot out there that support it. So according to Pulse, which is a regional EFT network. Uh, card present transactions now account for one in three debit card payments. So clearly the use mm. case is there. Yeah. Um, but absent the functionality, these these payments are getting processed through the Visa and Master, MasterCard networks. And the Dar- Department of Justice, in a letter that it sent to the Fed commenting on the Fed's proposal, said it its analysis shows that Visa and MasterCard combined process 75% of all debit card payments and 90% of all online payments. Mm. So the Fed's proposal would be to make it clear 
that the merchant choice dictates in its Durban Amendment regulation applies to both in-person and card.present transactions. So DOJ and FTC in their comment letters both said they backed the change, um, but they said basically that it's only one step to increase competitiveness in the debit card market. They want the Fed to adopt a more encompassing plan that takes aim at routing-based, what it calls routing-based incentives. You know, these include like, you know, rebates or lower rates when an issuer succeeds in steering more transactions to the Visa and MasterCard networks. So here's what the FTC wrote, quote, as experience with CNP transactions has demonstrated, it is difficult to predict, predict in advance the ways that issuers and networks might devise to inhibit merchant routing choice. Yeah. So it's worth noting at this point, I, I just so that everybody's clear on this, the FTC has regulatory authority over the payment card networks under the Durban Amendment. Right. And the DOJ has, you know, ha has the uh, antitrust power, you know, the enforcement power for antitrust laws. And it's been it's taken aim at the issuers and the networks in the past regarding debit, debit card routing. Back in the early days of, re, of the regulation, uh, for example, DOJ lashed out at Visa and MasterCard for requiring, the way it was set up, remember it was supposed to be merchant choice. And the way right. a lot of, people, a lot of um, merchants set it up was, what they were forced to set up was, when, I, when a consumer goes to the point of sale, presents a debit card, they have to choose which network it goes to. DOJ said, no, 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 that's that's contrary to the Durban um, Amendment, and you gotta, you know, get rid of that. So, and then for the for its part, the Federal Trade Commission took up an investigation into whether Visa and Mastercard, along with debit card issuers, were blocking alternative networks like Pulse and Shazam and all those regional ET, EFT right. networks process debit card payments and that investigation appears to be still in process and i believe it strikes me that the ftc's comment letter to the fed incorporated a lot of stuff from its investigation it was about an 18 or 20 page comment letter which is wow. was really a lot to you know uh parts but that yeah. was you know pretty much what i got from the from the uh, comment letter but I want to also, you know, there was something that came up in the Fed's proposal that I'm not sure I reported on in the past, and I wanted to point this out to people. Um, you know, under the Durban Amendment, it's supposed to send to Congress every year a, um, a report on debit card pricing and practices. Right. And then included that report in its request for, uh, request for comments back in May. And here's a couple points that really struck me. Since the regulation took hold 10 years ago, debit cards issued by banks subject to the rules, remember only banks with over 10 billion in assets are subject to Durban. Right. Um, interchange has remained unchanged at between 22 cents and 24 cents. I mean, think about how many times credit card interchange has changed in those 10 years. Right. Uh, and right. then the transactions routed through the regional EFT network has fallen um, in those 10 years from 31 cents to 25 cents. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's such an interesting topic for our audience to really like, you know, it's one of those things our audience doesn't really think about. Right. Um, 
Right. You know what I mean? But it's interesting. And, and, you know, as a interesting aside, um, I just finished doing a, um, you know, basically doing a data dive into like 200,000 statement fees uh, for our statement analysis business and building some new right. automation stuff with our developers. And it right. really is shocking how low of a percentage, you know, Shazam and, you know, some of these other non Visa MasterCard networks get of, oh. you know, it's, it's really kind of shocking. So I think people need to understand that, you know, it is, this is something that's going on and it's like, you know, these things might seem overly technical, or overly complex, but they really do impact our business as a whole. You know, they're oh, driving yeah. the regulatory conversation right now, which is hugely important right. to our business. So I think hugely it's definitely something important. to pay attention to. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worthwhile. I mean, it's like, okay, you know, it seems arcane and it seems really complicated, but that's the reason why you need to pay attention. Right. Because right. it's these complicated things that become more complicated through legislation and regulation. And, right. um, you know, yeah. I think there's, you know, very good chance that, you know, if, if these changes aren't made, if something, you know, like what FTC and DOJ are looking for aren't made, they might take matters into their own hands. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll definitely keep us posted yeah. on this one, Patty. Yeah, thanks, James. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.